0: Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you. Go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. Grab a seat. It's good to have you here, as Chris said. It's good to have Chris here. It's fun seeing people come in for this. And, uh... I'm hoping by God's grace we get to plant guys like Chris and Wes and some others out um, as we plant new churches and start new campuses. I'm excited about that. Um, Hey, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors. I'm the lead teacher here. I'm excited to talk to you today. If you have a Bible or an app that you use, um, flip over to Galatians 6. We're going to do Galatians 6, um, verses 11 to the end. We are going to finish that book today. Can you believe that? Yeah, we... (laughs) and someone's tired of Galatians so we we started Galatians like 93 years ago and we have slowly been working our way through it pausing it whenever we have just felt like doing that and picking it up whenever we're feeling like doing it and uh, today we finish it but it's been a good book I've enjoyed it Um, so as you're turning there some of you might know this some of you might not the haymaker um, is a punch that boxers use that's a little bit different than other punches um, not that I'm some expert on boxing, but boxers use jabs for an express purpose or reason. They've got uppercuts, they've got hooks, they've got di- and other ones with, with different names, but the Haymaker is a little different. That is a punch that is kind of devoid of a whole lot of art and skill. It's kind of a kitchen sink punch. It's a punch and a throw that a boxer uses when he's in a corner, when he's desperate, when he's tired. Um, they call it the Haymaker. Um, some of you can just infer by the name, because back in the ancient world, when sickles were used to fell grain, um, uh, wheat or grass or whatever, it, it has a sickle shape to it. You know, the sickle has a bent shape to it. And that's often what it looks like for someone who's throwing the haymaker because their body is pivoting, right, and arcing before their fist can even catch up. Like I said, it's a sloppy throw. And so as they throw, their, their, their punch kind of follows after them, and it doesn't really connect very well. Um, but if it does connect, it puts the opponent on the floor and that's why it's used. It's a punch of desperation. It's a punch of last resorts. It's kind of the Hail Mary, um, for a boxer. The reason I'm talking about this now is because this is Paul's haymaker, this last little portion, right? It's important. It's a good portion of scripture for us to end on, right? It's been a good book for us as a church, I mean, I've had conversations with many of you and have seen how the book of Galatians and the letter that Paul wrote to that area of churches has really started to change your understanding of what the law is and what grace is and what the gospel is when it's um, unpolluted, right? It's also good for Knoxville, I think. In the first two weeks of this book, we did discuss a little bit about the similarities between Knoxville and Galatia, very similar places. Of course, Galatia is a region of cities and churches, and Knoxville is a distinct city, but the people were very similar. Knoxville, like Galatia, struggles. We struggle in a couple things. If you've lived in Knoxville or if you've moved in from other parts of the country, you'll, inside you'll say amen. Don't do it out loud because we do have people that grew up in Knoxville among us, okay? All right, might offend them. Knoxville, like a lot of cities in the, the deep South, they're very good at putting on a shell, an encrusted exterior that shows that hey, we are close to God, but really not so close to God. Right? It's a little bit of a shell, a little bit of uh, maybe a facade, is what I've heard. Hey, Chase, is it possible to get the ring out of this? Okay. Um, also, one of the things that we've struggled with as a city and as a region is adding things to Jesus. Jesus plus an additive. And what that does to the gospel is it changes it so it's not so good of news anymore. It takes what was good news and it morphs it and evolves it into something that's kind of disappointing news. It's the news of being saved into new works and new rules. And we're good at that here as well. You know, I I looked at some of the stats. Knoxville is always finding itself in statistics. We are number 10 this year, according to the American Bible Society, as the... 10th most biblically-minded city in the country. 10th. Last year we were first, right? So we're slipping, right? I think, they, I think they get that statistic by how many Bibles are bought. Uh, but I looked at the eight cities in between us and Chattanooga who unseated us. They think they're so cool, don't they, Chattanooga? But they unseated us. All eight cities in between us and the number one spot are within driving distance of just a few hours. I mean, the Deep South runs that pole, Right? The top 10 most biblically-minded cities. But all that means is that a lot of people went to the store and bought a Bible and put it on a flat surface in their home. It might be a study Bible. It might have a famous pastor's name on the front of it. It might be leather-bound, but it's, it's just sitting there. Because are we really that biblically-minded as a people? I mean, before we answer that, let me remind you. This morning, only about roughly between 16 and 20 percent of the Knox metro area is even attending a church service. Right? 80% of your population is sleeping right now, right? Or they're washing their car, or they're getting ready to go for a hike. I mean, it's pretty outside, right? 80%. I don't think we're the most biblically minded city. I just don't. Not that not that coming to church makes you biblically minded. But you've been out there and you've lived out there. I think you probably just inside disagree with the statistic that we're anywhere close to biblically minded. Right now, in Knoxville, Tennessee, in this region, 80% of churches are either declining or they're, they're dying or they're in plateau, total plateau. There's over 800 pulpits in our grand metro area. I'm throwing in La Follette. I'm throwing in Maryville. I'm throwing in some towns that probably don't really consider themselves Knoxville, but we're going to consider them outstretched Knoxville. The larger metro area, there's over 800 pulpits. That means that there's 640 churches right now that have not been growing. A lot of them are shrinking. I mean, right now there are pastors preaching and they're wondering if it's their last sermon. There are church staffs and committees right now asking themselves, is this the week we shut the doors? Right? 80%. And of the 20% that are growing, of the 20% that are not in decline or in total death, half of them are growing because other churches are giving them families and then they give some of their families to those churches. They're just reshuffling the deck. Only 10% of the church is growing from addition from the community. People that um, were very unchurched, wrongly churched, de churched, whatever prefix you want to put in there, they're actually adding from the community. Only 10%. We are not the most biblically minded people in the country. We're just not, right? We're a lot like Galatia. Our southern culture appears Christian, but it's very far from it. We have also veered from the gospel. We started adding things, little additives, even good things, to Jesus, and it makes the story of the gospel very disappointing for us. For six chapters, Paul has been doing the best he can to reason and to appeal with this church that he loves are really good people. Really good churches. He had a hand in planting. He had a hand in, in serving and loving. And just like we would do if we bumped into somebody that we loved, but we saw something tearing them apart, we would reason I mean, he used um, just his own life experience. He painted vivid pictures. He used extreme language. He reasoned through the Old Testament. He reasoned using logic. He did the same thing we would do. We would try. They would deny us. We would try again with our friends. We'd get some other friends. We would use extreme language. We would do whatever it meant to, to help our friends. And that's what Paul's doing. And whenever we get desperate, we start throwing haymakers. And that's what he's doing today. So let's just jump in. Galatians 6. Verse 11, by the grace of God, we're finishing this book today. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Let's pause it for a second because that's peculiar what it means right there. Um, Back then, uh, you know, Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, these, these letters were dictated. So you had a scribe that was very skilled in writing a, a, short, a, a certain script, right? It was easy to read, it was transportable, it was hard to get that stuff mixed up. So Paul's walking around, and he's just talking, and then they're writing it down, these scribes. But there was always a point, and I think there's a couple other letters in the, in the New Testament that he kind of uses the same terminology, but right now is when he says, hey, I am taking the pen from the scribe, and now I'm writing. This is me in large letters, with bold print and double underline and I'm circling and then I get the highlight tool out a little star in the margin and then I'm going to dog ear the page he wants to draw attention to this he says I am saying this I'm about to sign out pay attention it's important that's what he's doing in the J.B. Phillips translation of the Bible which is a fun translation if you're ever shopping he says see how hard I press with my pen and that's what he's translating to us right now verse 12 it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh." So Paul has been talking for a long time in this letter about what the false teachers are doing. Today he talks about the why. He's getting into the motives of why the false teachers are doing what they're doing, why they're troubling the church. And it's important for us to know this because their reasons for polluting the gospel, their reasons for building a religious front, they're the same motivations that we have. We really are them. I mean, this is just for free. A little bit of a side note, but it's important for us. Whenever you read the Bible and you come across failed characters... People like the Pharisees or false teachers, Um, Noah had some failure in his life, did he not? David, Solomon, whenever you start reading about people where they hit foul balls and they're really struggling in their life, it's good, it's healthy for you to see your capacity to do the exact same thing, if not worse. I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we just want our, our knowledge to be increased, We want our cognitive to increase, but we don't allow the word to pierce us, to wound us. We don't allow the word to minister to us, to provoke us, right? And that's, I'll just tell you, friend, that's a dangerous place to be. It's a super dangerous place to be when you're looking down your nose on the failures of those in the Bible and don't see your capacity to do the exact same thing. I have a capacity to be this, this type of a person. I think if you were honest, you might agree with me. And I think what happens is, and why we blast through scriptures like this, is because we see words like circumcision in there. And in our minds today in 2014, they might as well be talking about, I don't know, making cheese or threshing wheat or something that we don't really do today, you know? I mean, we do circumcision today, right? But we're not like all asking people about it. So, you know, it's not like some common thing that we discuss, it's not some dividing line. We don't have like half the room over here circumcised and the other half not because it's the cool thing to do. We, we just, we're not, we're not there. So it's easy for us to see that and go, oh, and move on because we don't even get it. There's a delta between us and circumcision culturally. It, it's easy for me to do that. But don't lose the symbolism of what that word is. This is what good hermeneutics is. That Words used a lot. All that means is just to understand what the Bible was saying to them then So that you can understand what it means for us today, right? Circumcision back then, very simply—not to get way into it, because we've already spent a few sermons doing that in the past—it's an external symbol of cleanliness before God. It's something that God gave His nation that said, "If you mark your bodies in this certain way, if you do that, then you will be clean before Me, and it will be evident between yourselves and before Me that you belong to Me and you are clean before Me." That's what it means. And so these false teachers were bringing that back, bringing it back. They were going to the Gentiles and understand the Gentiles never were God's people until the cross, and the cross just blew that wide open. So these false teachers roll in and they're like, hey, well, congratulations. Welcome to the club. It's nice to have you as part of God's people. You and all the other non-Jews, it's good to have you here. You're going to love it. Oh, but we got something to say. I mean, you need to look like us, you understand. I mean, you could be in, but you need to talk like us and you need to be like us and sound like us and do the same things we do and eat the same things and go to the same festivals. You need to pretty much be a Jew is what they were doing. And this is what freaked Paul out. Blood vessels popping out because Paul understands that's not how it works. It is by grace through faith plus absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. So he struggles with this. Now, with all of that being said, It's easy for us right now in this point to start drifting. It is for me, right? I I know what some of you are thinking right now, but Luke, we we get that. By grace through faith, by grace through faith. We hear it all the time. I get that. Circumcision, we get that, right? So we we start to fade off. I don't think anyone in the room is saying, nah, I don't agree with you. I believe in the false teachers. I think circumcision is the bomb. We need to still use that as cleanliness before God. I don't know what the big deal is. I don't even know why Galatians is even in the Bible. No one is saying that. But what is your version of circumcision? It does apply to us. We all have what that means for us. We all have this version that we use to show how clean we are before God. We have this thing that we add that says, if I do this well, it makes me clean before God. Or if I don't do this, then it makes me clean before God. So not just something we do, maybe abstinence Maybe something we don't do. We all have our version of circumcision. Ask yourself this in your mind or say it. Don't do it out loud though because no one will sit with you next week. But in your mind, say, "I I am cleanest before God when I do fill in the blank. I am most approved and favored by God when I find myself more often doing this. Or I think I'm more valuable to God when I am not doing this. Fill in the blank. What is that for you? Something had to come to your mind. Think about it. Whatever that thing is, that's the thing that condemns you when you're not pulling it off well, isn't it? Isn't that that thing that's kind of the cloud over your head when you're not doing well? And isn't that the thing that whenever you are doing it well, you use as a weapon against those around you to judge them, to to maybe carry a ruler around and, and measure what their righteousness looks like based on how you think you're righteous before God? I think we all have one because we're all human. And the the truth is, is these false teachers, they they weren't even doing a good job of following their own rules, just the external ones. I mean, when it came to the internal mechanics of what God was saying, they, they weren't following any of that. But if people could see it, they were all about it. I'm going to put a scripture up on the screen, so just check it out up there unless you're really fast in the Bible. But Matthew 23, we have a place where Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. And now, now, really, it's the whole chapter. On your own time, you should read that whole chapter because Jesus only stops or pauses long enough to take a breath, and then he goes right back after them. It's the whole chapter. But this little piece particularly is helpful today. In verse 2, he says, "...the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice." They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Here it is, verse 5, big verse. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Welcome to the deep south. right? For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they loved the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. They put on a good show for those around them because they wanted to look good before man. They wanted to look good before God because that is how they measured their cleanliness. Now, phylactery, because I know all of you already know what that is, so I'm just going to remind you of what a phylactery is. A phylactery is something that the Jews would use back then. It was like a leather box. It's like a leather that was shaped into a box and it would fit right there by a strap. They'd use a leather strap to hold it um, on their forehead. And there would be four passages from the Old Testament written on a papyrus, rolled up and stuck in that little phylactery, right? Just to remind them. You could find it in the Old Testament. It would just be to remind them and always be before them. And then they would have tassels on their garments. Fringes, tassels, that's what they're talking about. And it would show how spiritual they were. But here's the thing about mankind, especially men. Give them something that could be made bigger or cooler, and they will use it to compete and compare with those around them. So, phylacteries might only come three inches long, right? Out of the store, but isn't it just a matter of time before Tom comes in with a five inch phylactery, right? To show that he is extra clean before God? I mean, it's hey, you want a three inch phylactery? That's all you, brother, but I'm just saying, I got a five inch. And then Jake comes in with a nine-inch phylactery. He's got a giant toaster-looking thing on his head and bumping into walls. But hey, he's clean before God, and he's showing it. Big tassels, dragging on the ground, always going to the dry cleaners because it's just a mess from dragging everywhere. That's what guys do. That's what he's talking about. This is what Jesus is talking about. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Why? Why would they do that? Because that's the measure of their cleanliness before God. Make no mistake, we have our own phylacteries. We do that. Imagine them getting ready for work. The false teacher or the Pharisee in this case. Getting ready for work. Touching that doorknob, ready to go, coffee in a hand, just a laptop over their shoulder, and then the wife stops them and says, Hey, Tom, where are you going? Going to work. Yeah, but you're, dang, you're phylactery." Oh, oh gosh. And he gets it and he puts it on and ties it. He's ready to go. Couldn't leave home without that. Or else people would think that I wasn't clean before God. Can't be caught dead without that. Ever. What is that for you? I mean, people don't change. We don't change. We are these people. What is it for you? Whenever you're about to minister to somebody... Whether that is preaching the gospel, whether that is counseling, whether that's rebuking, whatever it looks like. Whenever you're contacting and engaging those that you're doing life with, or those with the city, the city where you're maybe bringing the gospel to bear, or just getting to know them, um, whether you're coming to a gathering, whenever you're doing something, what is it in your mind that you hope that you have that they don't see missing in your life? What is it that you make sure is polished? What is it that you make sure you do not leave at home? so speaking. That's your phylactery. That's the thing you polish. It's the thing you make sure so that if you're still struggling with that addiction, then you never tell anyone about the gospel, do you? Why? Because you, you left your phylactery at home. You need to work that out first, right? Because it shows that you're not clean before God. I mean, are your kids acting perfect? How does your marriage look? Are you been pure online? All these things that we do or we don't do, but we really believe measure us before God so we make sure we polish it, we make sure we clean it before we do anything with anyone else. What do you use to show how spiritual you are? Because whatever that is, friend, that has you on a cross you don't belong on. Think about this. It has you on a a cross you don't belong on. Now, why were these false teachers doing this? Paul actually tells us. He gives us two main reasons I mean, he says they do it for, I mean, really three, because he says they do it to avoid persecution, which seems odd, and we'll talk about that. But he also says that they do it to make a good showing and to boast in the flesh of their converts. Doesn't that seem odd? It really, sh- it's the whole thing of, look what we built. Look what we built. I mean, Paul came in and did, he, he did the best he could. He planted a couple churches, but we replanted them, and look what happened. Now they've all got phylacteries, and they've all circumcised themselves, and they're all going to the same festivals and diets i mean we're pulling it off and because they had a lot of converts and because they got a lot of work done it made them feel more pure before god and more pure before man right they competed they compared they boasted in order to maintain an image that they really wanted to keep they just needed people they needed people to tweet about them they required people to just fawn after them Again, I'm going to keep reminding you, we are capable of this. We have the capacity to do this, to compare with each other, to compete with each other, to require people to think well of us, to demand that people tweet and fawn after us. We have the same capacity. And when we we place our, our trust in these very things, what we do is we take what Jesus did in the gospel And we discount it, we delete it. When I say the works of Jesus, the fact that he lived a perfect life among us, coming as the full God man, just living among us, never sinning like us, living that giving his life he tackled the cross he wasn't drug up there kicking and screaming wasn't scared of the cross he was grieved because he didn't want to leave his disciples he was very hungry to do his father's will and it was for the joy set before him that he literally tackled that cross he was ready for the cross goes up there this beautiful cosmic substitution of what should have been you and should have been me ends up being him this beautiful story of what god has done for us as he was pulled down off the cross put in a tomb meant for just mere mortal man, right? raised up, taught his church, raised to the right hand of God, all of that, all of that. When we trust in these things, we delete that, just delete, and we add ourselves. We add ourselves, and we do this because we feel like he's insufficient, and feel like what Jesus did was good, not good enough. God can't possibly be satisfied by that. There must be more work, There must be more work. We must do some things so that God is truly happy with us, and that's where the Galatians started to pollute the church. It's the same thing that we We, do. We do it too. We don't always do it on purpose either. But God, He can't possibly be satisfied by a simple substitution, can He? And I'll tell you, I mean, just speaking as a missionary, two missionaries, which you are, if you're a person of God, you are a missionary. Just to say this broadly, the cross, the the cross is a portion of the gospel. It's not all of the gospel. Because there's an empty tomb in there, and there's a perfect life lived in there, right? The good news, I mean, is also Jesus coming back. So the gospel's a, a grand story. The cross is a very important pinnacle part of it, but it's incredibly offensive. It's offensive to us. It, I'll be honest with you. I catch it being offensive to me sometimes. And if you're honest, you will too, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But what it does is it divides all of mankind into two groups, Very simple. It's not complicated. You have those that are very satisfied with what Jesus did on the cross, and you have those that aren't, so they put themselves up on the cross. They put themselves up there. So they can do what Jesus could not do, right? And this is because it's offensive. It offends our sensibilities because the cross says to you and me, you don't do anything. Think about this. The cross says to you, you don't do anything. Surely we do something. Surely we do something, right? I mean, don't we pray or read? I mean, yeah, we do something. I gotta do something. I mean, I gotta show up to church anytime the doors are open, right? I mean, I do something. We do something, right? I pray all the time. I memorize a bunch. Volunteer. Give a lot of money. Tuck my shirt into my khakis. Whatever. I got to do something. You don't do anything. That's the offense of the cross. You could do those things, but it doesn't get you a promotion. It doesn't get you any more. It doesn't increase your level of favor, right? Because you were saved when you were at your dirtiest, at your worst. That's when the rescue happened for you, right? It's important that we know that. It's important that you know that you were saved by God, through God, for God. It's, a, it's an easy way to say it. If you can say that and remember that in your mind, it helps you keep some of this straight. You were saved by God, through God, for God. By God, that means it was by His plan, His architecture, His timing, It was him coming to us. It was of his initiative, right? It was done through God because Jesus was fully God and man and it was through his work on the cross and out of the empty tomb that salvation happens and it was done for God. It was done for his glory. It was done for his glory. Why are we boasting? What is there to boast about? Why why would we compete? Where's the basis for competition? I'll tell you what it is. If I have a list and I can bring it to God, I save myself. Salvation belongs to me. And that's tempting. Because then I can compare, then I can compete, and then I can boast. Then I'm the hero, and I save myself, and I'm the martyr, but I'm also the king, right? And it all becomes centered on me. But Jesus says it has nothing to do with you. And you don't do anything. His act on the cross says that. He says, I'm here because of you. Because of you. Jesus is on the cross because there's something radically wrong there was a cosmic break sin entered and it broke the cosmos it didn't just make you lust every once in a while it cracked the created cosmos and he says I am here to reverse that I'm here to set things right and all you need to do is watch believe and benefit Watch, believe, and benefit. That's hard for us, though. That's offensive to us. Why would that be offensive? Because what do you mean it's because of me? What do you mean you're up there because of me? I think I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I'm not like that guy, right? I mean, I screw up every now and then. I get it, I get it, I get it. But not enough to put you on the cross. Not up there for me. What do you mean there's nothing I can do about it? Watch. There's tons I can do about it. I can fix this. And I'm not comfortable receiving a gift I didn't earn. Now, we don't say these things, but you see the conversation between our flesh and the cross. It is offensive. It makes mankind angry, right? Every religion, every religion that you will ever see is mankind's attempt to remove the offense of the cross and make ourselves our own keepers. Every single last one of them, right? The cross just makes people angry. Now, listen, the culture, just so you know, again, speaking to you as missionaries, as I've been talking the last couple minutes... The culture, the city, <clears throat> the region, it's very comfortable and very okay with cultural Christianity, which we're already really good at in Knoxville and in this area, the whole, the whole East. We're very good at it. will let you uh, dig wells in the Congo. No one's going to throw a foul on you there, right? You could paint a wall and a gym. You can do that. No one's throwing a handful of quarters back at my face in the laundromat. They'll let you do that. It will not, I repeat, it will not, it will not let you bring the cross, not to their face. It won't let you do that. Why? Because it confronts the egocentric self-righteousness that mankind carries. It wounds our pride. Because it tells us we don't do anything but benefit. And we, as a man, we, we cannot stand that. We can't contend with that. It's very difficult for us. And this is why Paul says the false teachers taught performance to avoid persecution. Does that make a little bit more sense now? Because of the offense of the cross. So what? So we'll add circumcision and it'll make a lot of people happy. Now we've taken Jesus out of the gospel. We've taken him off the cross and we've placed ourselves up there because now we have works that are finishing up where Jesus is. we short, right? But at least we're not ticking a lot of people off. I mean, Paul preaches, they're stoning him, right? They preach and they have large phylacteries and people call them rabbi in the marketplaces and people greet them and give them the best seats. Paul preaches the gospel and he ends up a prisoner. They preach the gospel. They get their name in lights. They're not going to get persecuted for that. And that's because if you take the offense of the cross out of the gospel, it stops being good news and it also loses all of its power and no one is going to persecute that. No one's going to, the world's not going to persecute that. No flags thrown. If you preach Christ crucified, let me just tell you, you will be opposed. You will be ignored, ridiculed, And you'll be persecuted because you are wounding mankind's pride. You're wounding it. I mean, just as a sidebar, real quickly, how are you doing with that? Whenever you preach the gospel, to the saved or to the lost, because we believe in both, I need the gospel today. I'm going to need people today to preach the gospel into my life. And tell me how sufficient Jesus was so I don't try to be sufficient where he lacked. Because we all do it. We preach the gospel to each other. And as we preach it to the city who desperately needs to hear it, as you're doing that, do you get all smiles? Does your gospel confront people? Is there a confrontation where they're looking at their, their, their self-righteousness and their attempt to, to be God? Or are you just telling them, hey, man, there's hope for you. There's new life. And listen, I get it. The gospel's a great message, and there is new life, and there is hope. <laughs> there's more than that. There's a freedom from sins. There's a freedom from being in prison and enslaved. It is incredibly good news. But before it's enchanting, it's confronting. Before it's enchanting news, it's very confrontational news, Right? I mean, Jesus wants the throne of that person's heart that you're talking to. The problem is, there's already a king sitting on it. And that king must be dethroned. And that's confrontational. You start touching people's idols, and you start taking wax at their fake little Jesus that's not pulling it off, and they will react. They will react. But it's necessary. That's what makes the good news good news. Right? That's what makes it very good news for us. This is why John Stott says, I I love this quote, he says, we need to visit Calvary often. It is at the cross where we find ourselves shrinking to our true size. The cross shrinks us into correct perspective where we see ourselves how we ought to see ourselves in God's eyes with respect to sin, right? All of this comes to this. There, There really is only room on the cross for one king, friends. There's only room for one king, one martyr, One hero, one savior. Now, our king was on a cross. He's there no longer, right? He bled out. That was a real thing. He really died, right? And he left the the tomb to show that not only can he beat sin, he could beat death as well. Beats sin on the cross, beats death coming out of the empty tomb. He, He runs it all. He does such a great job by showing us that in the word. But our flesh, we see that empty cross and we can't stand it. So we crawl right up on it. The flesh cannot stand to see an empty cross. It cannot stand to see a work finished. So we must finish it. And I'm telling you now, if you struggle with your worship of God, if you struggle with how you work around people loving God, if you struggle with community, if you struggle with mission, it might be a case where you need to crawl up off the cross that you've put yourself on and let Jesus be sufficient and avoid what the Galatians are screwing up right now. I'll just go on. I can sit there way too long. Verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, but by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's very poetic for him. And he says this. I boast in being dead. I basically boast in being a dead guy. I'm, I'm boasting in that. And what Jesus has done and how I'm lost in that work right now. Right? Not only that, because I boast in that, then the things that are valuable to the world, they're not really valuable to me anymore. And the value that I think I probably held once before people, that's gone too. They're not throwing praises anymore. They're hucking stones at me. So even the value I held to mankind is gone. Value is redefined. What is valuable is redefined even by the gospel. I love this. This is what Martin Luther says. He translates this verse right here and it says this. I condemn the world and the world condemns me. I detest the doctrine of self-righteousness in the works of the world. And the world, in turn, it detests my doctrine of grace and condemns me as a revolutionary heretic. Right? In 1 Corinthians, we see this real quickly. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Think about that. He chose what is low and despised in the world. And then later on, he says it so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Whenever you boast in Christ, whenever you are boasting in the fact that you are dead and he is alive, what it does is it redefines your values. The things that were very valuable to you because you were in the culture, God is changing your affections. He doesn't just redefine you, he redefines values and then he gives you uh, an affection for those things, right? And and we've all experienced that and all of us still are, right? Some of you, call of duty. Ooh, time in the word, time prayer, community, call of duty. It's hard, isn't it? come on, it's a fun game, right? New affections. Nothing changes. Back in my day, it was Doom, the original Doom, on the PC, right? There's something, something's competing, but he starts to change it. He starts to change your diet and your aspirations for what you want. Redefines you, redefines your values, and gives you new affections for them. So what does this mean? I mean, it just tease it out a little bit. The world holds some very primary elements, very high. So like comfort, the world values comfort, power, security, identity. That's a massive one. These are things that are valuable to the world. And they die away as we become new Christians, as we become a new nation. Think about it. You are free. If you're a Christian today, I'm going to say this and you're not going to believe me, and that's okay. Okay. You are free from needing other people to give you purpose. You don't need that. You're free from requiring people to give you an identity, to to just give you that picture of yourself. You're free from it. You don't need that validity. Why? Because you have it in Christ. When you are satisfied in what you look like, you look like Jesus in God's eyes, Christian, When God sees you, he sees his own son. That should satisfy you to the point where you could give a rip what your neighbor thinks of you, what your wife thinks about you. You don't need them to feel a certain way about you. Now, this is valuable to the world, though, is it not? The world needs that. But we we don't. It's hard, though. Moms, isn't it hard? Dads? We don't need our kids to perform perfect and be perfect so that people think that we've got our stuff together as parents you don't you don't need that you don't require that anymore think about your jobs men i have to i don't need this church to get to be some big deal to prove that i'm the next big deal i don't have to have that why because jesus is big enough it's good enough news for me but the world holds that valuable what about security and comfort i mean come on now we live in the mountains that's important comfort is important. Security is important. So what does the world do with those values in mind? It hoards, it steals, it collects, it protects, it insulates, right? And that is our temptation as well. Because we are not confident in what Christ has done for us to make us secure, to make us comfortable. We're not comfortable in that. We're not comfortable in what Jesus has done. We're not resting in that work. So what do we do? We provide ourselves comfort. And that usually means insulation from other people and from the very kingdom that he's put us in right? So we hoard our calendar, we hoard the checkbook, we hoard our talents because we are not satisfied in Jesus. Do you see how this works? Redefines us, redefines what's valuable. It's a big part of it. This is different, by the way, than just not caring what people think. It's better than not caring. It's having your values redefined entirely. Your whole value system is just shattered. Look at this in 1 John. It says this, 1 John 2, in verses 16 through 17. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. That's you and me, friend. We're being redefined. And not only that, our values are shifting. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's important for you to know that. Ask God to give you better affections for him ask, listen if you don't love jesus ask jesus to help you love jesus does that sound goofy jesus i just don't find myself loving you very much could you give me a capacity to love you more could you redefine my affections because i love my jet ski a whole bunch and i like talking to you but i really like waxing the jet ski right and i like riding it sometimes too so can you help me with that I mean, Jesus, I I love being with my wife and helping my kids, but I love Netflix so much. Could you help me with that? Right? Did you know he'll do that? He'll he'll expose your idols if you ask him to. He's real generous. Verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Here's my fervent, my my fervent. My favorite verse, verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. That's in the Bible, parents. You can use it on your kids from now on. You could quote the Bible every day. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. And then he says, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, be with your spirit, brothers, amen. Now, I don't know if you saw this in there. There was a jabby through. Some of you caught it. It was real. It was kind of hidden jab. He says this, that he bears the marks of Jesus. But he's talking to a group of men that are walking around marking each other. And why are they marking each other? Because they're calling something a slave master as they're enslaved to law. So yeah, you can circumcise me and then I'll always follow the diets. I'll always follow the festivals. I'll always do, 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 do. He says, go ahead and do that. Keep marking yourselves. But leave me alone because I'm marked with a different master. I've got a different master who's marked me. It's a jab. This is what Luther says about this as he rephrases it for his own life. This is not his translation of this verse. This is him saying it, the same passage. These marks were given to me against my will as decorations from the devil and for no other merit but that I made Jesus known. So this is it. Paul finishes this letter as he started praying for grace to be with them. And I'd like to finish it the same way. I think it's fitting, right? He says this thing in here. Some of you caught it. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only really becoming a new creature. That's really what counts, right? Can I just say it does not matter how you came in here, circumcised or uncircumcised. Some of you grew up in the church. Some of you did not. It does not matter how you walked in those doors. Some of you addicted, some of you not admitting that you're addicted, right? Some of you legalistic, and some of you very sloppy with your grace, right? Contorting both. The thing is, is the various states in which we enter, the community of God, there is grace there for all of us, and we all need it. We all need this grace. This is the trouble. It is a trouble with churches not just ours, but churches that preach grace all the time. We try to define grace in almost every sermon that we do, right? Grace is God's unmerited favor, exhausted on us, totally despite us. You hear us say this all the time, totally despite us, totally despite your best efforts to get it yourself, And totally despite your best efforts to run away from it as fast as you can, God fully gifts his benevolent gift on you and exhausts it totally, and you don't deserve it. It's totally unmerited, and that is God's grace. The problem that comes with defining and redefining and hitting and hitting is it becomes contemptible to us because it's so familiar. We, We get bored with it. It's easy to get bored with the things that we hear about all the time. And I think most all of you, especially if you've been with us for longer than a year or so, would be able to do a really good job at restating what grace is. You could be stopped on the street. What do you think grace is? I think you knock the cover off the ball. Make us proud and not ever really feel what it feels like. That's frightening for pastors. It's frightening for me. Let me just ask you really quick as we end this, all right, because we're ending Let me ask you, what does your story of grace look like? I I know the definition of grace. But how do you describe grace as it touched you? I remember the living room. I don't remember the date, but I remember the moment where grace got me. Where my story of sin and perversion collided with God's story of grace and redemption. I remember how I felt inside. I can't explain it. And that, and that feeling for me was protracted out over a couple months. I don't even know the exact moment I became a Christian. I don't. I don't think you have to know that, by the way, just to set some of you free. But I do remember what was going on inside of me. I felt unworthy. I felt, I felt scared a little bit. I felt excited at the same time. I couldn't understand why God would love me so much. I couldn't understand why... Why, why he wouldn't just let me go on? I'm running headlong away from him as fast as I can, and he grabs me by the shirt and pulls me into his kingdom, and I didn't even ask for it. In fact, I asked for the opposite, and he gives it to me anyway. When I talk about grace, I remember that. I'd like to ask you, what does that mean for you? What does grace mean for you? Did something like that happen for you? I don't care how good that preacher was at that church camp. I don't care. I don't care how much they paid him. I don't care how frosted his hair was. I don't care about his illustrations or how hot it was in that room, how cool the camp was. I don't care about that. I went to him too. But what did grace look like when it slammed into you? When we ask you questions like, Do you love Jesus? Can you explain how much you love Jesus? Do you wonder? I mean, explain to me how grace felt whenever you caught it and internalized it. Can can you explain that to us? Friend, if you can't, if you can't explain what grace feels like to you, I fear for you. I fear for you. Because it's easy to say prayers. It's easy to get dunked in water and just get wet. It's easy to go through the deep south living in such a way where you have this encrusted exterior and you're doing all the things, and you too are a statistic for the American Bible Society as you have a Bible as well sitting on your bedstand, but you can't describe grace. That moment where, as I always say, you look at your sins and you say, oh my goodness, look what I've done, and then you recognize what God has done, and you say, oh my gosh, what have you done? Look what you've done for me. That moment of intoxication where everything else seemed insignificant. Some of you haven't felt that. Some of you have not seen that happen in your life. Again, let me appeal to you to crawl off the cross. To crawl off that cross where you're trying to finish some work with the things you do. And just let Jesus be the one that is satisfying to God and sufficient to God. He did that, you do nothing. That's what the cross says. You receive a benefit you didn't deserve, right? Let me pray for you.